Amen, church. What a hope we have in Jesus Christ, not by anything that we've done, but only by the work of Christ on our behalf. And it is wonderful to sing about it. Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew, and go, go ahead and grab that as well. As we begin, we've had a great morning. We've had baptisms, uh, young believers coming into the faith, coming into the church, and also we've had several go through our membership class. And so I'd like to take a moment and welcome those members. And the first family that's up there is the Denton family. The Denton family, Alex, Angela, Allison, and baby Denton on the way. We, uh, we had a great time uh, talking in, in the class that we have for a membership and hearing testimonies and sharing those testimonies with one another. And so I make a motion. Do I hear a second that we receive them into the, into the family of God here? And uh, all those in favor, would you say, I love you? Amen. All right. Next, Miss Terry Litzkow. She was also, uh, she's newly to the area and, and came in and uh, gave a wonderful testimony, came to the, came to the Lord in, in the adult age uh, and uh, really just fell in love with Jesus, and she has a powerful testimony. And so, again, I'd like to make a motion we receive her into our family. Do I hear a second? All right. All those in favor, would you say, I love you? All right. And then the Clayton family, Melissa and Owen, uh, they uh, too joined us in the class, and we uh, had a good time of hearing how God has moved them from place to place and how God is working in their life, and, and even just recently, just speaking to them in special ways. And so, uh, again, I make a motion that we receive them into our family. Do I hear a second? second. All those in favor, would you say, I love you. And that is the call of our church, to passionately love one another to Jesus Christ. We are all on a road of sanctification, and God is working in each and every one of our lives. And so as we gather in here as a family, we gather together as those who spur one another on, encourage one another, use the gifts that God has given us to build up one another in the body of Christ. And so it's just a wonderful, wonderful time to be joined together. So Acts chapter 23. We've uh, covered a lot of the book of Acts, and we've seen now how Paul is kind of coming in on the final stages of his earthly life, and, and we've seen that he was warned repeatedly not to go to Jerusalem. He was warned by different churches, by different believers, by different prophets, and he still managed to make his way to Jerusalem. He had a gift offering that he wanted to bring to the church, and he was not warmly welcomed by the Jews, but rather he was beat, and he was beat almost to death. Then he was arrested, and then they tried to flog him, as you just heard Jonas read. And he rightfully used his citizenship as a Roman citizen to avoid the flogging that he was certain to have and to buy some time. And so he now, as we get to chapter 23, stands in front of the council. Acts 23, verse 11, is a key verse in the section we're going to look at. And it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's word reveals his sovereign plan. What a wonderful thought that Paul, in this low time in life, where he has been beat, where he's been almost flogged, where he's been arrested, he is met by the encouraging words of God. You know, it would be amazing if we had a book that would tell us the future. Wouldn't that be amazing? I'm reminded of that classic movie, you know, back when movies were good, Back to the Future. 
Do you remember that movie, Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox? The second movie, Back to the Future Part Two, not quite as good, but you might remember that Biff Tannen goes back in time and gives himself the sports almanac. Do you remember this? And so therefore he is able to make bets on all the sporting events that would happen and win all kinds of money and prestige and power. Some of you I have wasted that illustration on. So let me use David Platt's illustration from the book Radical. As he was in seminary, he decided to go down to the French Quarter and set up a table that said, we can tell you your future. And so they set up the booth right next to the voodoo witch of New Orleans. And people would come up and say, you can tell us our future? And he said, yes. And tempted to have them hold out their hands, he didn't do that. He said that they would begin to ask them questions about sins that were in their life. And as they would ask questions that would reveal the sin that was in their life, he would say things like, you know, based on the things you're saying, your future's not looking real bright. Because we are told in God's word in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful truth that we've seen today, witnessed in the waters of baptism, that we deserve the wrath of God, but we are fully immersed in Jesus Christ, and we are covered by his atoning work on our behalf. We didn't earn it. If we earned anything, we, we earned wrath, but by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, we can have life and have it everlasting. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a book that told us all the things that we need to know about God's sovereign plan? You know, as we've talked about living out the will of God and we've looked at his sovereign plan, we're confronted with the fact that we need to live by the word of God. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstances we find, our in, find ourselves in, no matter the outcome, and no, no matter the emotional feelings that are telling us to do otherwise. We've been confronted with the fact that as you look at the Apostle Paul, his life is not one of ease. His life is one where he is being poured out as a drink offering for the glory of God and for his eternal glory. We, when we grasp the fact that we are, we are deserving wrath and death, but there is one who came to give us life, our lives then are to be poured out with an eternal purpose, a drink offering to the Lord. As we read God's word in Hebrews, I'll show this to you up there. In verse 10 of our chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, we have been given a book. We've been given a book that clearly reveals God's sovereign will. It reveals even 
our responsibility to live out his moral will. We've been given a book that shows us that there is hope, and there is hope in none other than Jesus Christ. And if we don't believe the word of God, then eventually we won't follow the word of God. If we don't truly believe the word of God, then eventually we won't follow the word of God. And if you don't believe it, you simply won't live it. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What strong words are written here by the Hebrew writer J.B. Phillips puts it this way. He says, How much more dreadful a punishment will he be thought to deserve who has poured scorn on the Son of God, treated like dirt the blood of the agreement which had once made him holy, and insulted the very spirit of grace? Wow. Can you imagine having received a full understanding of the gift that we have in Jesus Christ, his redeeming work on the cross, having an intellectual agreement with it, but continuing to live in a sin that is basically like trampling underfoot the work of Jesus Christ. The Greek there, that same language is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, God's sovereignty, his will, his plan is directly equated with his all-knowing ability, his omniscience. He knows your heart today. He knows your life. Your life is lived out in complete openness to God the Father, His Son Jesus, and the Spirit of grace. He knows us. And I think there's a very fine line between being a prodigal sheep and being an unregenerate goat. Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30, and then we will get to Acts chapter 23, I promise. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Verse 28. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into the barn. Can you imagine having a book that reveals God's sovereign plan? Can you imagine being presented with a truth that you can put your whole life in, that you can follow? I like how John MacArthur puts it, in this present age, believers are not God's instruments of judgment. 
and destruction, but of truth and grace. Toward unbelievers, we are not to have hearts of condemnation, but of compassion. The church is called to preach and teach against sin and all unrighteousness, but in doing that, its purpose is not to judge, but to win souls. Not to punish, but to convert sons of the evil one into sons of the kingdom. We are gathered here today to stand on the word of God, to hold his truth, to preach against sin, but to spur one another on to love and good works, to love one another passionately towards Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we get into God's word, as we see the life of Paul, that we do just that. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are overwhelmed at the grace and the mercy and the love that you bestow upon us sinners who are unworthy and undeserving. Father, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that we can come boldly before your throne of grace because of your son Jesus that stands at the right hand interceding for us, that has fully covered us with his atoning work on the cross. Father, help us not to trample underfoot that, but to hold it as the highest privilege and honor and love in our life, that all of our decisions would be based biblically on your call on our lives. Use us, Lord, not to judge, but to win souls for the harvest. Father, we thank you for your work, and we look forward to your return. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I can see is believers can take courage in God's sovereign provision. God's sovereign provision, Acts 23, let's read verses 1 through 5. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Oh, don't you love that? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. God's sovereign provision. The word provision is an action of providing or supplying something of use, something of need. You and I look at the thought of Paul's life here, and we look at where he's found himself. We look at the difficult situation that he's in, that he's been beaten, that he's been arrested, that he's almost been flogged, and here we are talking about God's provision in his life. You see, provision is not the gift of prosperity. Provision is the gift of God's grace and mercy. And Paul, in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the situation he's found himself in, he stands there in good conscience because he has been given God's grace and God's mercy he writes in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that through Christ, he has given us everything that we would ever need, his mercy and his grace, the provisions that we need to stand before God covered and clean. Not that our lives would be easy, not that we wouldn't face trials and circumstances, not that we wouldn't face persecutions, but that we would be covered 
by his grace. He writes in Ephesians chapter 3, starting verse 6. This mystery that is the Gentile is that the Gentiles are to are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness to access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is able to say that God's sovereign provision is the grace needed to live for an eternal purpose. Paul is able to say, listen, he has provided me the grace needed in order to preach to the Gentiles the mystery of God's plan. And that's the mystery that the Gentiles are now being brought in. That God has sent his son to pay the penalty of sin for all who would believe him, not just Jews, but Gentiles alike, that we are all brought in. He said, listen, this is God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan is the salvation of people from every tribe and language and tongue through Jesus Christ. So no matter what circumstance or situation we are in, we have been given the sovereign grace of God for an eternal purpose. You ever think about it that way? As you're at work, as you're going throughout your week, that you've been given the gift, the provision of God's grace and mercy in your life to be lived out for an eternal purpose? That God is using you to further his kingdom, to draw people in to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they're no longer under the wrath of God, but they are under the covering of the Son of Jesus Christ so that they can have life and have it everlasting? that our lives have been given the provision of God's grace and mercy, not just for our own salvation, but the, for the salvation of those who we encounter. What an amazing gift of God's provision that we've been given. So in Acts 23.1, Paul stands there, and he says, looking intently at the council, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. Good conscience. I want to talk about three different types of conscience. A good conscience, an evil conscience, and hypocritical conscience. And Paul says that he stands there in good conscience. 1 Timothy 1.13 Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Do you see the provision of God? Though I was this way, I receive mercy. God's provision. So living with a good conscience is not living in perfection, but it's in the provision of God's mercy. You know, you stand there before God with a good conscience means that you and God are good. I've fully disclosed to him everything that I know that goes against his word, and I've repented of it, and so I stand before him in good conscience knowing that that was my former life, and knowing that I've been covered by the blood of Christ, that I can stand there in good conscience. A good conscience is not in what we do, 
but in what Christ has done on our behalf. So we must not fall into the religious trap of measuring our spiritual state by our do's and don'ts, but measure our spiritual state by what Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf. That's how you have a good conscience. Good conscience, 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism, we would like to see this as water baptism like we just saw, but what Peter's talking about is not just water baptism, but the picture of baptism, which is the full immersion into Christ. Our good conscience is not in what we do, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. As Peter's talking there, he's talking about Noah and how they went into the ark and how they were still subjected to the judgment of God through the flood, but they received mercy and salvation through the ark which is a picture of Christ. Listen, though we might go through judgment, though we might be sinners, we are covered. We are immersed. Our salvation is in the fact that we are in Christ, just as Noah was in the ark, and we can have life everlasting. So living in a good conscience is living conscious of Christ's work on your behalf. A good conscience is necessary. It's necessary for us to be a good witness. John 9, 24 through 25, talks about the blind man. So for a second time, they called the blind man, they called the man who had been blind, and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. The Pharisees, look, we know this man's a sinner. We want you to give glory to God and tell us the truth. And the blind man responded. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind. And now I see. To have a good conscience in order to be a witness, there's a moment in your life where you say, listen, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have all the knowledge. I don't fully understand everything, but what I can tell you is this. I was blind, and now I see. I, I, was, I was in sin, and I received mercy. What a beautiful thought. A good conscience is necessary for being a good witness. John chapter 4. The woman at the well, 439, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This lady did not have to have a perfect reputation to be a good witness. Let me think about that for just a second. You don't need moral perfection to be a good witness. You just need to know you've received his mercy. Because there's a lot of us who shrink back from being a good witness because we're like, oh, they know what I did. They know how I lived. And this lady says, listen, my life's an open book. I stand here in good conscience. He knows everything I ever did, and yet I receive mercy. Is that your story? Have you received mercy? It's not in what you do and don't do. It's what, in Christ, what Christ has done on your behalf. Another kind of conscience is an evil conscience. I got a simple question for you. Do you hate sin? Do you hate it? 
The church answer is yes. The other church answer is Jesus. So you can, you know, Jesus? No, it didn't work that time. Yes? Okay. Do you hate sin? Yes. I was at a pastor's conference, and I think I've told this story before, but for some of you it might be new. I was at a pastor's conference, and the pastor got up, and he said, Pastors, I got a question for you. If you're in this room, and you're a pastor, and you struggle with sin, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, really? Would you love it if I asked you the same question right now? No, you would not. So every pastor in there was like, very slowly. Yeah? He said, I can tell you why. Okay, that'd be great. I'd love to know why I struggle with sin. And he said, because you still love it. There's some part of your heart that thinks that that thing that you're participating in is worth more to you than Jesus Christ. And you're trampling underfoot the gift of God. What an amazing thought. Do you hate sin today, church? 1 Timothy 4.2, now the Spirit expressingly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insanity of liars whose consciences have been seared. An evil conscience is a seared conscience. If the conscience is seared, literally cauterized, then it has been rendered insensitive, meaning that it has been dulled to what is right and wrong, meaning that, spiritually speaking, you've played with the fire of sin for so long that it has literally cut off or closed off your ability to sense the danger in what you're participating in. I've got to ask you, do you hate sin? Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. An evil conscience doesn't hate sin, but it loves it. It pursues it, and it defends it. You ever been in that situation where you were defending the sin that you're participating in because you thought it was the right thing for you to do? Have you ever pursued something that you knew was against God's word because you thought it was going to give you more satisfaction than following Christ? That's what you call a seared conscience, an evil conscience. An evil conscience, in fact, picks and chooses which Bible verses it wants to follow and ignores the ones that it doesn't want to follow. And I got news. Students? 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 I got news for you. You cannot pursue sin and pursue Jesus Christ at the same time. Adults, I got news for you. Adults, adults. Really, I see where they get it. No, I'm just kidding. You can't pursue sin and pursue Christ at the same time. And we can't pretend that we can. I'm reading a book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness with a bunch of other pastors from the area. And he says this, Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of Christians around them. 
as the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so those Christians are more or less holy. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me ask you, is your conscience dictated by the cultural holiness around you, or is your conscience dictated by the connection you have with the Spirit within you? The last one is the hypocritical conscience. Let's look at those verses again, verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Peter said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I just love that. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We don't know if that's sarcasm from Paul. We don't know if because of his elderly state and his bad eyesight that he really couldn't see that that was the high priest or that he couldn't imagine that someone who was the high priest would order him to be struck in the face for something he said. But here's what I want you to know. Paul fires back. You ever want to fire back? Yeah, that'll strike you, you whitewashed ball. Right? And I'm justified in saying it. But I see with Paul's response, in good conscience, I should still live by God's word. I shouldn't have let that out. I shouldn't have said that. He calls them a whitewashed wall. Should remind you of Jesus in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You see, if we're more offended by the sins in others than we are the sins in our own life, then we might have a hypocritical conscience. You see, this high priest is super offended by Paul, yet does not even see the sin in his own life. Church, can I tell you, there's a lot of us who are quick to see the sin in other people's lives and yet never repent of the sin in our own heart. It's a hypocritical conscience. I'm super offended by them and what they did, and I'm justified in what I'm doing. That's not the case when we're given God's sovereign plan and his provision. Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I twice fast a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted, exalted. 
exhausted, right? That's what I said. Maybe I'm exhausted. You know, I love that line. Be merciful to me. You know what a good conscience is? Standing in the provision of God's mercy and his grace. Because apart from it, we're hopeless and we're helpless. Paul's found himself in a situation where he's hopeless and he's helpless, but he's standing in the provision of God's grace and mercy. You see, our witness and our worship would be stronger if we worked on moving our hypocritical conscience to become more of a good conscience. Second thing I need to see, believers can take courage in God's sovereign presence. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the, in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, they assembled, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You see, that's why they were sad, you see. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus stands next to Paul, who obviously for lack of a better way of saying it, he's kind of got a lot going on in his personal life. Right? I mean, he almost got torn limb to limb in just, just in this council meeting, in this church meeting. <laughs> right? He's got a lot going on. And he sits there in this dungeon alone, but he's not alone. Because the Lord stands next to him. Hey, Paul, take courage. I've got a sovereign plan and that sovereign plan involves you. Hey, church, you might have a lot going on in your personal life. But I got news for you. There is a sovereign God who has given you his spirit and who says, hey, I've got a plan. And I know your situation and your circumstance looks pretty grim right now. But I've got an eternal purpose for your life. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. So no matter what situation you're in, take courage. God is sovereignly working out his will and his infinite plan, and you have the pleasure and the privilege to be involved. Isn't that amazing? That it's his story that we get to be a part of? Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You may think that things are getting out of control, but God is sovereign. He is currently in active control and in full command of the cosmos, and he has given us his presence. Has there been a time in the last maybe two years 
that you thought, man, things are getting out of control. Can I just encourage you for a minute? Take courage. God's got a sovereign plan. He's in control of the cosmos. There is nothing happening that is not outside, that is outside his will and his plan. And we get to take part in his plan. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I hope these are encouraging words to you. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him of a contrite and low spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We serve a God who is in complete control. So take courage. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient, and he is eternal. And not only that, not only does he dwell in the most holy of places, but he also is with those of a low and contrite heart. So take courage, for God is with you. God depends on nothing outside of himself. He is complete, and there was never a time when he was not. So I think he's got this. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So take courage. The one who stands beside you and stands with you is truthful and unchanging. And not only that, he stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for you on your behalf. So take courage. A.W. Tozer says he's immutable, which means that he has never changed and never changed and can never change in any small measure. To change he would need to become or go from better to worse or from worse to better. He cannot do either. For being perfect, he cannot become more perfect. And if he were to become less perfect, he would be less than God. Take courage, believer. Therefore, take courage, believer. Jesus Christ is perfect and holy, and we can be confident that his actions toward us are always perfect and just no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, no matter how out of control things may seem. Because Paul's sitting there, and Jesus comes and stands next to him. Take courage. I've got a plan. God is perfect, and he is holy. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, remember this and stand firm. Recall it's a mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have have purposed, and I will do it. So where are we? 
I want to end with some more encouraging scripture. My goal this morning was to just read scripture over you. In Romans 8, Paul's able to say this, starting verse 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who, is inter- who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can stand courageous because we have been given the provision of God's mercy and his grace. And not only that, We've been given his very presence. And nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me ask you, do you have that relationship with him today? Has there ever been a time in your life where you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Where you said, you know what? I had some ideas and my my life has gone off the rail. I was once like this and I want to receive mercy. If that's you, will you pray that prayer? Will you ask God to forgive you of your sins? And if you do pray that prayer, I'd love for you to tell me. I want to rejoice with you. You know why? Because once you pray that, once you give your life to him, once you begin to say, I want to live completely immersed in you, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We should worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is encouraging in times of trial, that it's encouraging in times of heartache, in times of pain. When we find ourselves in circumstances that we shouldn't be in, Father, help us to turn to you. Help us to remember the provision of your grace and your mercy, that when we sin, that you give us more grace and more mercy, that you are forgiving and loving, and you're drawing us in, wanting us to repent, wanting us to turn from our evil ways. Father, I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us in such a way that we would know that you're with us, that we would take courage, and that we would live our lives to your sovereign plan for your eternal glory. In Christ Jesus, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?